so continue continuing our conversation um you know what's one way that either your work professionally or an interaction has changed someone's life in a way that you didn't expect work inter a work interaction you said has changed someone's life. any interaction personal and a lot of times we don't know the ways that we've changed another person's life or trajectory i'd say um i saved a woman from drowning in baja mexico i would say her life is pretty different now than it would have been otherwise um so those are those are the profound moments how how might i have changed someone's life professionally I would hope through mentorship I'm trying to think of some really interesting or cool scenarios i i wish i'd had the question in advance because i i probably could have um come prepared with uh with some good stories but i'm i'm also going to have to think on that one Okay, we'll, we'll get back to it. So in that case, you know, what's the most important lesson that you've learned from a past relationship? Most important lesson from a past relationship. When people tell you who they are, believe them. Listen, uh, I can tell you so many of them. Uh, look at actions, not words. That's probably the biggest one for me. Look at actions, not words. Um, because the actions don't lie. That's some, I, I, it's funny that you're, that you're venturing into this topic because romantic relationships and relationship coaching and something is an, is an area that I, that I love to dabble in and certainly love giving advice and opinions to my dear friends. Uh, but yeah, sort of, for me, it's, it's look at the actions because I, I would have wasted a lot less time sort of noodling through, does he like me? Does he not like me? Does he like me? Does he not like me? He says he does. He's, he says he does it. But you know, if I, if I would have just looked at the actions, that would have indicated the guy who, the guy who's into you or the person who's into you uh, is asking for the next date, is making an effort. And so I, I think I probably, I think a lot of, a lot of individuals, not just women, but individuals in the world waste a lot of time uh, wondering if feelings are reciprocated and that's a very unpleasant place to be. So we could save ourselves. Huh? Mm -hmm. It can be, it can be. I mean, do you think that's a result of insecurities and uncertainty and maybe a false that's very perception possible. based that's on what They always say, you know, you can't be in a relationship until you love yourself. And, um, I think the best thing a person can do is get to a place where they are perfectly, perfectly content on their own, independent. Uh, you have to be in that place before you can introduce an outside party. And that person should really just add to or enhance your life. Do not look for somebody who completes you. I feel like that's coming from a place of deficit. Um, yeah. So that's very interesting because I'm going to pivot now. Do you think then in 
relationships, people forget yes. how to and be I, friends. I feel a lot for parents who have to co-parent and they may, Michelle Obama, just she just talked about this recently and she's, she's so authentic when she talks about this. She said, there were times that I just I didn't really like my husband. I loved him, but I didn't really like him in that moment. And uh, I think parenting is a, it puts a stress on the relationship. I wouldn't know. I've chosen not to not that path is not for me uh, for a lot of reasons. And but do people is it hard to be friends when you're alone? Well, somebody told me in business, and I use this in my married my married life too. There has to be love after marriage. There has to be romance after marriage. So the same thing with, you know, it's so much harder to acquire a new customer than it is to maintain one that you've already sold just to just renew them. And so just signing the contract doesn't, that's, that's not the end. That is the beginning. And the yeah. same thing goes for marriage too. So making a point to have dates, to truly talk. I had a priest um, tell me, take a walk together every day. No phones, no TV. And that, that's actually, that's been a saving force. Hmm. That's, that's very, that's very salient um, because I do believe that the notion of friendship is one that's taken very lightly. You know, we talked earlier about the simple things like going for a walk, noticing callers, um, just having a conversation you know, um, we're going out for a beer, you know, or hey, let's go check out that theater or that library. The things that help rediscover, you know, those simple things like that's the glue. And I think oftentimes it's lost in this marade of trying to build this thing, which mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, we have an idea of it, but you can't actually pinpoint what it is. You know, the same way we talked about basic skills like taking a piece, a pen, and just writing a note. There's nothing more powerful in messaging than a handwritten note. Mm-hmm. I have handwritten notes that I have saved for decades. And I just go back and read them because I know this mm-hmm. person took time and tried to the best that they could to utilize their penmanship to send me a message. They didn't type it, they didn't email it, they didn't text it. They wrote it, put it in the mail, right? So I can, so there's something powerful about, you know, those connections and keeping things simple, friendship being the basis um, of a lot of things. Now on entrepreneurship, We talked earlier about the romanticization of the hustle. Do you think there's a generational shift today, you know, between those who understand the value of mental health versus what I would call the hustle gang, right? Because you go on social and people post Hashtag, you know, yeah, rising, rising grind, do this and do yeah. that and being busy, right? Where folks brag, rise and grind and all of that. It's okay. Wait a minute. Your mental health suffers, mm-hmm. which there's a direct correlation between your mental health, your physical health, right? 
So you do all this work to make all this money. And by the time mm-hmm. you slow down, you spend all that money fixing your health. I think that was the Dalai Lama. <laughs> you know, do you think we're at the, we are now at the point where it's taken two to three generations to realize and accept that? Or do you think there's still a long way to go? The population right now that is entering the workforce, they have a completely different view and perspective. They they have better, first of all, better practices, better self-care practices to begin with. They have they know about boundaries. Think like things that we never boundaries, what are those? Like, oh, I work all the time. Um, I would never say no to, to somebody or a client or a boss. Um, so they come with these like, yeah, this knowledge of sort of self-care and boundaries and communication. Uh, I love watching some of the TikToks where millennials will be talking about their boomer bosses or even Gen, Gen X bosses. And I do think to your point, Alani, that there has been an evolution in terms of what people expect. We're seeing that right now with uh, remote work and unlimited time, unlimited paid time off and all sorts of things that this new up and coming class of workers is demanding. And I say, darn, it's about time. And aren't, aren't we the fools that we, that we sold our, sold ourselves truly, um, downstream. I saw, I saw my dad quite literally work himself to death. Um, he had heart issues and just suffered immensely for his company. He was a, a multinational CFO. Uh, he was very, very dedicated. And I'll tell you what, you know, when the company, when it's your time to go, a company thinks nothing of letting you go. You know, when they, when they demand your 30 days or your two weeks, they would think nothing of, there's, there's not that reciprocity we talked about. There's not the rest of the same reciprocity. And so things have shifted. And I just, I really, really admire our, our young workers today. I know some people say like, oh, I don't understand them or, but I, I admire them. I, I envy them. That's interesting. So, so do you then believe that as the nature of work changes, all the facets of society as it relates to technology have to evolve as well, predominantly privacy and self-sovereignty. So for example, you know, today people are okay giving Mm up their personal information for convenience. So you go Mm -hmm. on Instagram, you go on TikTok or this applications, you know, it enable, you know, to take your facial image, you know, ask for your date of birth, all this information, and then has access to your telephone's content, your mobile phone's pictures, turns on your GPS and all of that. Do you think all of that being somewhat related, right? To the change in nature of work, because now we're seeing lawsuits where, you know, employees didn't know that, you know, <laughs> running your own device and using work applications there meant, you know, or means rather that mm-hmm. your employer may have access to your lo- things like that. 
you know, do you think we are getting to the space now where we have to realign those elements as the nature of work in itself is changing as it relates to privacy mm-hmm. and self-sovereignty? Drawing those lines, bringing work into the house now, you know, where do we say, okay, oh, oh, yeah. no, <laughs> I'm working from home, but... To. And it's funny because you know, when you first asked the question and I thought, well, you know, it's a consensual trade in a lot of cases, like you said, I am, th- I, I am getting a free social media service, I'm getting free entertainment or whatever I'm getting out of Instagram or any of the other, um, you know, comparable apps or sites. And the exchange is that you get my information. And, you know, they always hold like, uh, if you're not paying for the product, you're ultimately paying the product is you, like you're paying for it always. So, um, but I always like to think it's a consensual trade or consensual exchange. I think where it becomes an issue is when it's non-consensual, of course, and when you don't know how your data is being used, and I think you gave a perfect example when you cited the that transgression or the the blurring of the boundaries. If you have a work device on or a work app on your personal device, uh, in the same way that we have privacy statements and disclosures, I definitely think you know there needs to be a, there need to be a lot more rules and governance around that. Um, so I think you, you point out a really good example because initially my thought was was just very broad and saying, hey, like it also I'll give you one other example. So back when banner ads, I'm like, I'm really dating myself, um, banner ads were a thing and people would say, or like, why, oh my God, I can't believe you're allowing this app to, you, you're giving it permission to access your searches or your personal information. And I actually came from an advertising and publishing background. And my feeling was, well, yes, because I actually want an improved experience. And so, again, that was that consensual exchange of I I am willing to do this because I actually want you to feed me ads that are relevant to me. I like ads. They they promote awareness for me of new software, new technology, new products, new clothes, makeup that I might be interested in. And so I genuinely was always appreciative of the customization rather than um, rather than upset by it. So <laughs> that's that. That's actually that's actually insightful because it is a trade. You know where I've always had concerns was always oh, absolutely when companies true. socialize the costs and they privatize the gains. You know, if I think if people knew what's been done with their personal data then the same way we're seeing the younger generation demanding to be treated fairly in the workplace, I think you'd see a lot more action in terms of privacy. It's so convenient right now that, you know, most folks don't even know how their data is being used. They readily give it up for convenience. So we trade Mm -hmm. our Mm. personal information Mm -hmm. for access convenience for participation but we don't know where that information ends up what it's been used towards you know we did um i sat in a few working groups and anyone between 13 and 22 facebook values that person's data over a 12-month period it sounds accurate thousand dollars so, 
So imagine if in the end user licensing agreement, you know, when you first sign and you go agree, agree, and they just made it clear, oh, by the way, in a 12-month, the same way food processing companies and pharmaceutical companies and banks and credit are required to give you that clean disclosure and say, hey, this thing has 2,000 calories if you buy it. If the EULA and user license tells you, okay, your data throughout the lifetime of your membership per year is valued at XYZ dollars, I think mm-hmm. people will think twice and start saying, you know what, I want 10% of that. Now you socialize the cost of collecting the data, but you socialize the gains and everybody becomes a participant. And that becomes a fair and equitable distribution because your PR, your personal information is always going to be yours and you should be able to own that. So going Mm -hmm. back to my earlier point about blockchain technology, that's part of why blockchain exists. So you own your data and you sign every interaction with your, you sign for, you sign to give them access and you can revoke that access at an even point in time because it's all on chain. And, and, and the, yeah, and that makes it technically or technologically possible because I had set in on some venture pitches of individuals or groups trying to do precisely this before blockchain even existed. And they were anticipating why, why don't we own our own data? Why don't we have the ability to recall it and recall its use? And they wanted to create sort of like these passports or um, they, they had some interesting um, concepts in that, in that vein. So I think people have been kicking this thought around for, for a long time. And blockchain now finally makes it possible, thankfully. So that's, yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's, and it's, a, it is a good thing. It's a good thing. Now, will it, will it extend to sort of all instances? I don't know. Remains to be seen. It's going to be a battle. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a battle. I mean, I think we should always bre- build bridges, not walls. So what blockchain <laughs> and Web3 is to self-sovereignty and privacy, I think Web2 is for centralization. So Web2, so Web1 started with Yahoo and, you know, 90s, early 2000s. And, then Web, and that was the original idea to decentralize. So Web2 is where the Facebooks, the Flickers, the MySpaces rose out of Google's of the world where they centralized data into massive central repositories governed by corporate entities, mm-hmm. backed by Wall Street, mm-hmm. implemented in a public-private partnership with institutions of states. Mm-hmm. The issue now is as they evolved and amassed a lot of wealth and power, they evolved to become institutions that we can neither trust nor hold accountable. And the response to that is where blockchain came out of saying, if we decentralize ownership, governance, and access, there we can socialize the cost and socialize the gain because everyone is a participant and we incentivize that using cryptocurrency and tokens. So that disruption in itself, I think it's still evolving and emerging. It's taken form. Unfortunately, as with any industry, you would have bad actors. Crazy enough, when people look at crypto, they say, oh, scammers. And But people forget the biggest, the largest money laundering criminal is conducted using U.S. dollars. <laughs> okay. So as with any industry, there is always an evolution, a shakeout, mm-hmm. a rebaselining, and a readoption. 
that's where blockchain is right now. And I believe the next 12 months, I think, through this bear market, you would see the shakeout and the real potential of the technology would start to come to light. Yeah, and I would imagine in five years, 10 years certainly, but five years, there will be applications and uses of this that we haven't even conceived of yet. Um, and that's what I find exciting. Now, will it, yeah, and will it will it be a replacement for, for, I mean, can you go so far as to say, will it be a replacement for government or central banks? Um, you know, there are, there are arguments being made for that. Uh, I am, I guess I'm in a lean back mode. Uh, I'm just observing right now. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't see it being a replacement. I think it's going to exist side by side. They will complement because you need institutions of state. Okay. You need governments, you need oversight, you need mm -hmm. those structures Agreed. because Agreed. that's the basis Agreed. of society. But blockchain as a whole Agreed. would complement that. That's Agreed. why I said earlier, we build bridges and not walls. One will complement. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. I guess I've just read too many philosophical, like too many um, thought pieces on wanting to make blockchain that. that. Those are the maximalists yeah. who are talking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool, cool. So I know we're coming up on time. It's almost 3.30. And this has been, as always, an insightful and just all-around beautiful conversation. And well, I look forward Thank to Thank you for having today. me as your guest. Uh, your roster of guests is so impressive i've really enjoyed listening to your the episodes you've already done and thank you we covered so much ground we touched on relationships and mental health we touched on entrepreneurship so many things it was enlightening we always do i mean what did we empty a bottle of wine one time at that I think vineyard in wallingford <laughs> I think so, too. I think we will solve the world's problems one of these days, Kelly. <laughs> well, Kelly, always a pleasure. Look forward to having you back again. And Thanks, Alani. Yes, thank you.